Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is February the 3rd. It is a Thursday, and this is episode 3030, yep, 3030 of the Survival Podcast. And we are going to acknowledge that. We're going to acknowledge that it's episode 3030 today in just a moment. We're going to make a little quick mention of a quote that relates to Winchester. And of course, Winchester, the, uh, the, the, the father of the 3030 Winchester, one of the greatest rifle cartridges ever created. Anyway, before we do that, let me tell you what we're going to be talking about today. I got a great segment from Ron Paul's people. Ron's going to be talking about the Freedom Convoy and a lot of good that it's done. I'm going to have a little add-on to that one. Dan McAdams is going to talk about why it was such a brilliant idea in the first place. And Chris Rossini is going to talk about the power of the word no when dealing with megalomaniacs. I agree with that, too. Jeff Lawton is going to talk about producing your own meat birds without having to rely on a hatchery for some kind of quad-crossed hybrid and being able to do that on your own and get a decent growth rate and a good quality meat animal in a reasonable amount of time. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about dealing with Crohn's disease. Nick Ferguson, good to hear from him. We haven't heard from him much recently. Um, he will be talking about planting trees for a deer garden. Yep, a deer garden. I, I think I quote, quote that. Uh, I, uh, I, I made that term up a long time ago. He, the, the person asking here means it a little bit differently. When I originally came up with that term, somebody wrote me and like, I, it's not even worth having a garden. I tried to grow a garden. I barely got any vegetables. I shot nine deer eating my garden this year. I'm like, you have a deer garden. This is taking it to a different level. Uh, it's more permaculture being used to support wildlife that can be harvested on your own property. Tim the Toolman Cook will talk about making your deck invincible to the elements. And then Nicole Awesome Sauce will talk about the ins and outs of hosting a podcast leading up to my segment today, which has already been done at this point. I did it as a live stream on YouTube. You can catch the video of it if you want to. But it's why Spotify can't afford to censure Joe Rogan. I think that's an important thing for us to look at here as I am a podcaster and you are the audience of a podcast of at least one, probably most of you many. Uh, we need to pay attention to what's going on because they are looking to shut down our free speech. Uh, they really are. But there's a reason that in the case of Rogan they can't and it sets a precedent that's going to make it more and more difficult. I'll even tell you in the, during that segment though, and some of you will know this already why. Some of you think I've lost my mind, but it'll make sense when I do. I wish they would. I wish Spotify would censor Joe Rogan. And I won't say why now. Don't get mad. You'll understand when I explain. I'm not wishing any ill to Joe Rogan. I'm, I'm wishing ill to Spotify. Because they do censor people. In fact, they've said they've, spe they've censored since COVID started over 20,000 podcasts they've censored in some way or another for talking about it. 20,000. I don't even know if that number is accurate. But it certainly means they'll do it. But they're not doing it to Rogan. There's a reason. I'll explain. Before we do that, though, let's take just a second here. I got a quote of the day for you. I hadn't done that in a long time. But it has to do not really with the 3030, but when you were talking about a Winchester in the time that this quote is from, it was probably going to be a 3030. All right? I'm just saying. They're not like 1890s into the early 1900s. This is by someone that you probably don't know the name of. Most people today don't know this, this lady's name. But at one time, I would definitely say she was probably the most famous black woman in America. Her name was Ida B. Wells. 
She was an activist and investigative journalist exposing civil rights violations, lynchings, and all types of horrible things done to black people. She was born in the Civil War in 1862. Her family, her whole, you know, her, her parents anyway, died in 1878. She was only 16 years old. And she got her siblings together and held the family together along with help from a grandmother, moved to Tennessee, and then began to work as a teacher and a writer. And she did probably more for the early civil rights movement than just about any other member of her community. She was that big a deal, and we don't hear about her today. This is what she said about the problems and the solutions thereof to the abuses that were being done to the black community in the post-antebellum period. A Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home, and it should be used for that protection which law refuses to give. Now here's a woman that should be an absolute champion to the left right now, if they mean what they say. Of course they don't, but if they do. Funny, I've never heard any of them talk about her, though. Interesting. Ida B. Wells, certainly someone worth learning a little bit more about, especially if you care about the cause of liberty. And this is just another example. This is another example of armed citizens having the ability to defend themselves from government because most of the abuses that were occurring to the black community after the Civil War were being done through, not just only by, but through the power of the state. That's how it was, that was, that's how it was able to be done so frequently and so often. So either the state was behind it or the state was willing to look the other way when it was happening. And what did these people rely on? Being armed so they could defend themselves. It will never change, and a disarmed society will be abused by its rulers. In fact, a disarmed society will have rulers. An armed society, they may tolerate some level of ruler, ruling, but mostly an armed society will have elected officials and bureaucrats, not rulers. Anyway, with that, let's go dig on into uh, everything we got today, starting off with... Uh, The Ron Paul Liberty highlights on the Freedom Convoy and the power of the word no. It's the convoy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we talked about it, I sort of asked you, I said, are you sure? We have to make sure this is the largest convoy ever. You checked it out, and yeah. it really is. Yeah. Uh, the people who keep all those records, it is a big convoy. And the big thing about what's going on in Canada, and we've admitted it uh, on the air, and that is our change in attitude. Uh, you know, I, my memory was 1960s, and we had a sort of perception of the Canadians. And I've, I've been to Canada. We've had some supporters. Trudeau was a bad image for Canada. Yeah, no He kidding. gave them a bad impression. So I think the truckers have done the world and the Canadians and liberty a lot of good. Yeah. Just think of the image. Image changes. But what I like about the convoy, it sort of feeds into my bully conviction that, uh, you know, the people finally settle things. I hear there may be some American trucks. I told somebody the other day uh, that uh, if I lived a little closer, I'd get out my truck. There you go. And I'd join. <laughs> But I'm a little bit too far from that. All I can do is encourage them. Yeah. Because this is, this is a great event. I hope they keep it up. Canada, yeah. keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what's so brilliant about the idea of a massive truck convoy 
And it really is. It's amazing whoever thought it up. Because, A, they're big. These things are big. They're big rigs. They take up a lot of space. They were able to literally shut down the capital, Ottawa, with, with these trucks. They can shut anything down. They're massive. And also, where they're parked there, they're also not delivering goods. It is a kind of a strike, a general strike. The stores are going to be empty. People are going to notice. So it's really fascinating. So these are so easy to replicate anywhere and everywhere that it's right. pretty brilliant. Largely, uh, all of this operates as an illusion and a delusion because uh, the delusion is that men believe that they can organize and order the world themselves. And this idea is not anything new. It goes way back, probably to the very beginning. But, you know, only so much could be done. But uh, recent, recent, even the last couple hundred years with industrialization and technology and communication, these all had wonderful blessings in our lives, so to speak, uh, but also comes at a very uh, big cost because people that have accumulated power and money you know, they delude themselves into thinking that they can control everything because they can control machines, robots, computers. These things obey. But then you have the problem of people. People have free will. We could say no. And that is a problem for people who want to order and organize the world. You know, we, we could mess up their plans just by saying no. So what are they, what are some of the things we read in the headlines? They, they actually want to turn humans into machines. Now, why would you want to do that? Because machines obey. They don't question. They don't look for other ideas. They just say yes and they obey. So you have people that are trying to basically be a creator. And that's why all this falls apart. It's impossible. These are human beings. And, you know, they ultimately run up against the truth, which knocks them down hard. Uh, but in the meantime, look at what has been done over these last few years. You have this massive suffering. You have death. You have destruction. That's the, that's what uh, comes from these delusions. The people pay for it. Like Dr. Paul says, there's only one way out of this. It's not complicated. It's very easy. It's the ideas of liberty. It's the only way. There are no shortcuts or loopholes. We either will want to be free or we will not and then suffer the consequences. We always have to have the confidence and the conviction to use that powerful word, no. Yeah, I, I want to hit a little bit on this because I did a whole show about this early this week, about how this could spread and how it could actually disrupt supply lines, and that is a reason to prep. Let's, 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 I've gotten a lot of pushback. It will never be enough truckers to do it. You're, you're still missing the point. Ron's hitting the point. Um, there are governments in Canada right now, like I think Alberta and British Columbia, announcing they're ending all the COVID restrictions on February 28th. Why the 28th and not the 15th or today? Who the hell knows? That's how they've been doing this shit since it started, right? But like, oh, gee, it's our idea and stuff. What you're seeing also is, and this came in from Tim, Tim Cook, Tim Toolman Cook, who you'll hear from here in a bit on something totally different, that where he lives, the town he goes into, that if you had gone there a month ago and not worn a mask to a store, like the security would escort you out, cops might even come arrest you for not wearing a mask. And when he went into town after this all started, you know, 10, 15% of people in the stores are not wearing masks and nobody's saying jack diddly shit. This is a war of ideas. This is, this is the reality. They, they can only require compliance as long as people are willing to comply. When people cease being willing to comply, you can't require compliance anymore. 
Because there are more of us than there are of them. Period. The end. Infinity. And that's what this has done. It's started to wake people up to their own power. Because when you see all those trucks rolling and you hear those horns blowing and you know they're on your side, it hits something inside of people. It's already changed the game. It's already changed the game. If you think about some of the early music um, pirating services like Napster and LimeWire and stuff like that, they all ended up shut down in the end, but they changed it forever. They changed it. You, you think about it when you hear my segment on Spotify in a bit. How it, 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 it changed music forever. No more control. Once people knew you could do it, even though they have services now people pay to use, anybody that wants to listen to any music at all right now can do so for free, any song, anywhere, any place, anytime. So people will only use your service if you provide them enough value instead of trying to force them to do it. Because there was a mental shift that occurred in the 90s when we got the internet and we realized that music was just data and it could be shared and it couldn't be stopped. That's what this is doing. Oh, you mean I can just basically tell them to go fuck themselves and they really have no recourse other than to do that? Oh, maybe that's what I'll do. And every time one person wakes up and somebody observes it, it wakes up another person, then another person, then another person. This has hit a spark with people. This is spreading around the world. Even if it doesn't result in truckers shutting down the supply lines, it's going to result in rallies all around the world, and it is going to wake up people and win hearts and minds. And that is why it's so damn brilliant. And I completely agree with telling megalomaniacs no as well. With that, move on to something totally different. Let's say you want to produce your own meat chicken. You don't want to be reliant on a hatchery. You don't want to rely on steroids or something like nasty gick like that. You just want to grow birds that are worth putting on the table, and you want to take control for yourself. Ask Jeff Lawton to talk about that, and here's what he had to say. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And it's pouring with rain right here, and I've got earth movers doing all kinds of jobs around me, so I'm sorry about the background noise. It's just how it is. Um, and um, our first question is about chickens and how you get a decent meat bird in the least amount of time without using crazy things like steroids and all the other mad things that they do in the chicken industry nowadays. When I first started working in permaculture, it was a uh, uh, in the commercial chicken meat production. It was uh, a 10-week profit, um, or really a 10-week break-even, a 12-week profit, and an 8-week loss, um, so they reckon. Uh, but nowadays, it's a, it's a six-week profit, an eight-week break-even, and a ten-week loss. Six weeks to get a meat bird? That's kind of obscene if you look at the uh, laws of nature. It's obviously done with uh, very strange genetics and, and all kinds of hormones, and not the kind of flesh you really want to be eating if you're a meat eater. So if you want to get a decent bird um, in the least amount of time, I'm happy with 16 weeks. I used to be happy with 19, but I've pulled it off in 16. That's a farmyard bird fed on natural foods, uh, organic grain if you're feeding any grain or supplement, you know, supplement feeding, but generally actually out free ranging. We can get a bird in 16 weeks. How do we do it? First cross hybrids. So 
That's there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that you only get it once in the first cross. So you need two big birds. Obviously, one's got to be a male, rooster, a cockerel, and the other one's got to be a female, a hen. But they can't be the same breed. But they've both got to be from big breeds. So you get a big breed of rooster and try and get a real big fella, and then big breeds of hens because rooster can serve more than one hen, of course. And you just don't let any other birds in the in, in into the equation. So really big hens from one breed and a really big rooster rooster from another breed. The first cross, the eggs that are produced that you then rear up, whether you incubate them or put them under a broody, those birds are ones that get to wait in time, in in a decent amount of time. 16 weeks, you get a fantastic, good flavoured, natural meat bird. And that's fine. That's plenty for us because they aren't just producing meat. They're doing all kinds of other services to our natural ecosystems that are productive in so many ways. So that's that's the way to do it. And the second, if you bred those first cross hybrids together or with anything else, they would not perform in the meat production compared to a first cross. So it's just the first cross, the first generation, two different breeds, both large, obviously, rooster and hen. And there you go. You got it. Simple. And um, I think those are the birds all of us should be eating. This is something that I've actually become more and more interested in myself, and it's why I asked uh, Jeff to talk about it. The only reason I haven't actually started a project doing this myself right now is because we have so many daggone bantams, which is ironic because it's what got me interested in it when I made my uh, my blue phantom crosses out of them. But, you know, I look at, and these are small breeds, right? They're small. They're, well, Buff Orbitans is kind of a larger breed, a, a old English game uh uh, bird is really not that big bodied of a bird and, and the hybrid vigor of crossing even the bantams to uh, buff orbington was impressive it's probably a 1.8 percent increase in total body weight uh, especially on the cockerels and so i think this is a really great thing and it's i'm, I'm trying to do more meat production for myself it's why i brought muscovies back and i'm really thinking about uh, kind of drilling down on this and looking for the right cross. And, and I know Jeff said any cross, and any cross will work, but I think that there might be a really good way to go about this. And I, I do think that we have to look at this completely different than somebody that is producing chickens to sell when we're producing chickens for ourselves and our families and maybe our friends and neighbors. We don't need to compete with Tyson or Purdue. We don't. What we need is an animal that produces really high-quality protein in a way that is regenerative on our properties. And it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. And I think, actually, this approach can actually save money. Because the first thing you're not doing is buying chicks. And I really want to kind of dig more into, well, how do we set up local chicken um, groups that allow for us to go completely sustainable? And what I mean by that is sooner or later... I need more chickens, right? Sooner or later, I need more chickens because, like Jeff said, you get an F3, F4, F5 uh, crosses, even F2 crosses. You start to lose the hybrid vigor really, really quick. So what we need is a way that 
if I'm using, let's say, I'm, instead of giving breeds and people get ideas like I, I think I know what I'm, I've made decisions or anything, just say chicken A, rooster, and chicken B, hen. Okay? And that's what I'm doing. I'm doing A, B. If you're doing B, A, then we have a really easy solution here in that I can take some, you know, A chicken, A, A roosters over to you and you can sequester your rooster for a while and then you know any eggs produced you have now new genetics but you also have more purebred A brand chickens. And at the same time you could swap me a couple hens and now they're paired to my rooster and now I can produce and now we're we're getting outside the genetic you know we're 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 not going into complete inbred and we're not dependent. Something to that effect is where I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about going with this. I think this is really powerful because it's something almost anybody can do. As long as you don't live in a Karen HOA, you can probably have a small flock of birds, and you can easily incubate a dozen chickens twice a year, put them through four, four weeks you know, out foraging and what have you, and produce, what, tw- that would be 24 chickens a year. That's a lot of meat for a family. And if you have more land like I, I could, I could do easy 50 at a shot. I don't want to clean that many. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, move on to our next segment. Let's talk about Crohn's disease with Dr. Ken Berry. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for, from Calvin. Calvin's question is, would you please offer your advice on the treatment of Crohn's disease? So Crohn's disease is an inflammatory autoimmune condition of the gastrointestinal system. Uh, Calvin, I have never seen a dietary treatment more powerful for Crohn's disease than the carnivore diet. And I've got several YouTube videos about what the carnivore diet is and how to do it. But people with Crohn's disease, people with ulcerative colitis, people with irritable bowel disease, almost without exception, have complete remission of their symptoms while eating a carnivore diet. I'm sure every gastrointestinologist you've ever seen has told you you need to eat lots of fiber and that you need to eat lots of fruits and vegetables in your diet because you have Crohn's disease and somehow that will magically help. But what people who actually suffer from Crohn's disease find is that they do better and have fewer symptoms when they don't eat hardly any fiber at all. Fiber is very inflammatory and uh, irritating in the colon. And so I recommend you avoid all fiber and eat a carnivore diet. Try that for 90 days and then report back to us how much better your Crohn's disease symptoms are. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. I know sometimes people might think, well, gee, every answer Ken gives is either go keto or carnivore or pick one of the two. Um, but you know what? That's probably what most doctors should be doing for most things. We have all these illnesses today, and they're, they're, they're all different versions of autoimmune diseases. Humanity did not exist with all these autoimmune diseases for most of humanity's existence. And it's not like all of a sudden in the 20th century and the 21st century that the, the, the human body decided, you know what, let's just start attacking ourselves. There has to be a trigger, and the biggest difference between you and your you know, great, 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 a million times great grandfather that was walking around 20,000 years ago is the food you put in your mouth. 
And I know it's not, I sound like a broken record sometimes on this, but if you go back in the Paleolithic record, it is very clear that humans lived mostly on animals. That's what we lived on. And when I say animals, I mean everything from a crustacean or a bivalve like an oyster or a freshwater mussel all the way up to great big woolly mammoths and things like that. We lived on animals. And if you go into any indigenous culture that is left to itself today, that has the freedom to live as it always did, you will find that their diet is largely based on what they can stab, shoot, trap, or club. And if you go look at some of the ancient settlements here in North America prior to European contact, you'll find these massive mounds everywhere humans settled And they're along streams and creek banks and shorelines. And when you dig into them, you find shells. Because they don't run away. They're easy to harvest. They're high in nutrient density. One of the reasons I'm such a big fan of growing your own backyard protein, eggs, meat, fish, etc., is there's as much as I love to garden, and I get a lot of pleasure in gardening, there is nothing I can grow that will give you the nutrient density of... A fried chicken liver. There's nothing I can grow that will give you the nutrient density of one great duck egg or a beautifully seared Muscovy duck breast. Nothing will give you that nutrient density that you will grow in the ground. I'm not saying you can't live off of it. I'm saying nothing will give you the nutrient density per ounce consumed and per, per, per minute of effort extended by you as the farmer homesteader, permaculturist. Anyway, next up on that note, what about... A deer garden. I would call this more of kind of the deer food forest or deer orchard. Uh, Nick, talk about that. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com with another expert council segment. This one is on growing a deer garden, you know, for growing delicious venison. All right, this question comes from Kelsey, and it reads, Jack, question for Nick. I live on an 11-acre piece of land that is pretty much all woods in northeast Indiana. What trees would work for a deer garden, and how would you promote growth in an already established forest or other plants? Details, I, be I believe healthy, free-range animals produce better and taste better. The established trees are mostly shagbark hickory, maple, dead ash, and a few elms and walnut. I have a quarter-acre pond that is filled with a natural ditch and overflows back into the ditch. I have deer here and just want to increase the food for them naturally. I don't want them up near my garden beds beside my house, so my thought was to increase the food in the woods. I attached a photo. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, thanks for any help, Kelsey. All right, great question, and the simple answer is that to do any significant improvement to feed growth for deer, you're definitely going to need to thin the forest. And this is something everyone should be doing with their forested areas as part of their forestry management practices. You remove dead, dying, diseased, or weak trees, and by doing that, it promotes the health and vigor of the better trees. If a tree has a crotch that splits into multiple trunks, normally it'll be two trunks, at, say, around four feet off the ground, between, like, four and ten feet off the ground. Um, I'm not talking about multiple branches. I'm talking about a, a multi-stem split, and then it'll look like two mature, tall trees are growing side by side. Um, when you have that, there's a much higher chance that the tree will split during a storm or that a seam will open in that crotch, allowing disease and insects to penetrate into the heartwood and rot the tree from the center out, and then it just falls over and dies. 
So if we remove these poor quality trees, we'll free up more resources, light, fertility, water, for better quality trees that will improve the health of the woodlot overall. And this is just best practices for any woodlot, whether the goal is wildlife support or timber. And the nice thing is that you can drop the tree, cut it up for firewood and haul it off, or simply stack it all one layer deep in a spot near where you're going to have new trees or good established trees. And you let that rot down to new soil and provide lots of great nutrients for your new trees. And if you do this correctly, the next fall's leaf crop will cover that wood, keep it moist, it'll mulch it, and it'll hide it from view, and you'll really never even know it's there. Um, so let's think about deer. They are a browsing animal. That means if they can't reach the leaves, they can't eat them. I've never seen a Dumbo whitetail buck flying around the treetops eating the acorns off an oak before they fall. So our goal is to bump up the regrowth in the understory. Think coppicing. Uh, you open up some glades and you plant high-protein fodder trees. A coppice lot is a fantastic deer environment. Add to that some chestnuts, crab apples, pear trees, anything will, that will drop a food crop will help feed the deer. Now, I have to say, deer are kind of like the honey badgers of boundaries. They just don't care that you've decided that's the place for them. If you feed them, they will come. You'll get more deer coming into your area than you normally would otherwise. They'll come up to the food area, and they'll branch out from there looking for more food. And if you have garden beds with a whole bunch of succulent, tender, yummy things, to them, that's just more of a food plot, which means they're going to come up to your house and your garden beds. And when that happens, you really need to have an on-duty, full-time employee scaring them off. And what I like to use is a minimum of a three-jewel discharge fence energizer. I'm not talking about one of these little 1.2 jewel things you're going to find in your box store, tractor uh, stores. I'm talking about a three jewel minimum. Three to six to eight is a really nice sweet spot. And all you need is a single strand of fence. You need to put it about two feet off the ground or so. And you can buy these aluminum bait cups that have a scent lure that's long-lasting, or you can be cheap slash frugal like me, and you can use aluminum foil and peanut butter to hang your own DIY bait on the electric fence. Set it up about 12 feet or so away from the garden beds to give you plenty of room to work around them and not get zapped yourself, and enjoy the fireworks. Set up a game camera and get some laughs when a deer comes up to sniff the electric fence, and they get zapped right on that wet nose. They're going to decide, you know what? I like the free food down in this bottom a lot better than up here where the electric bees live. So no deer eating your broccoli, happy deer eating crab apples down in the forest. So if you're smart, you'll pick a good vantage point down there next to maybe a large tree where you could put a, a tree fort for your kids or for yourself or a deer stand. And you open up a few lanes in different directions and line the lanes with the fodder trees and things like chestnuts and fruit trees. And then it's easy to maintain the trees. That's the reason why you're doing that, so that you can maintain your nut trees and stuff. And, off, and you know, to some people, it might look an awful lot like a shooting lane. Uh, if you're going to use it for practicing and sighting in a rifle or things like that, take into account backstop before you lay it out. So don't just mark out some lines and just say, that looks like a good spot. Think about what is behind it. 
Uh, so to recap and give some specific suggestions on trees, get some light in the forest to grow things closer to the ground where the deer can eat it. That's number one. Plant things that will drop carbs in the fall, like apple, chestnut, pear, uh, etc. Grow some high-protein, fast-growing leaf crops that they will enjoy eating, like the fodder trees I sell. White mulberry, hybrid willow, hybrid poplar. You can get them lots of different places. Sorry to say, uh, for all y'all listening, I am sold out on those fodder trees. But uh, to the, the listener who wrote this in, if you send me an email and you want a package, send me an email and I'll make an exception and put you on the list manually and I'll just uh, use some of my personal trees that were going in my fodder system to send to you. A special thank you to everyone in the TSP community who supported my annual plant sale. Thank you so, so much. We're pretty much sold out, but uh, I think I do have a couple of both the fruit and nut and spring flower bundles still available. If you're just now hearing about that, you might want to go check those out. And uh, for all of y'all who did order, thank you so much again. We're waiting on the growers to dig and ship trees later this winter. I will start shipping a day or two after I get the trees in the mail. No telling when that'll happen. Last year was uh, around the beginning of March. Um, it's all dependent on weather conditions. I can't, I can't make any promises of exactly when that'll happen because it really all depends on uh, how cold and frozen the ground is. But we will ship as soon as humanly possible. That's all I have, folks. I hope you have a great weekend and do good things. So there was there's one tree variety he didn't mention that I would recommend that anybody that wants to manage uh, for wildlife and especially for white-tailed deer include in the trees that you would plant for them, and that would be persimmon. And I'm not talking about use or something like that, these nice, perfect persimmons that we grow for, for ourselves, these hybrid varieties, Asian varieties. Good old-fashioned, cheap-to-buy North American persimmon. I think Nick actually sells those in some of his packages, which again are sold out this year. Um, and it is there's a there's a bunch of reasons for it. One, they're incredibly hardy and they grow throughout most of the United States, and they they survive. Two, even though we're talking about like the smaller persimmons that really need to be completely ripe and what they call bledded before they're good for you to eat, you can use them too. So what we're talking about kind of here is like zone four food forestry, right? But the food, the main food product is meat, and it happens to be deers and maybe bushy-tailed little rats that crawl around in the trees and things like that. I can't say the S word because Charlie's at my feet and he'll go nuts if I say the S word. Um, so, you know, that's what we're doing there. But the thing about persimmons is, one, they, they survive just about anywhere. Two, they're an incredibly dense carbohydrate crop. Number two. Three, they hold on the mast a very long time. Even when a lot of them are falling, a lot of them will hold until very, very late in the year when there's not a lot of other things available. You get a good winter wind, and those dried-up knobby little persimmons come falling off a tree, and the deer will gobble them up. They don't care if they look like a raisin at that point. They will eat them, and they will get all that sugar content, which they really need in the deep part of winter. And when I, when I say they love them, let me explain what I mean by this. I was hunting a very, very long time. I was in Pennsylvania. This would have been early 2000s. I was up in my, my tree stand hunting uh, a soybean field edge line to a woodlot, right? And I didn't know this, or I would have set up closer about 75 yards away from me, which is beyond what I'm willing to shoot with a bow at a deer. There was a persimmon tree. And 
there were, it was starting to drop some persimmons. And a couple doe and a young buck who was big enough to get shot, right? He's like a little six pointer. You know, they're, they're there eating the persimmons. And the does kind of sneak away and they don't come my way and damn it. So no meat. And then I'm watching this buck and he kind of finds like all the persimmons and the does are not in estrus. So he's not going to get any deer loving. So he kind of starts crossing the field and the sun's going down. And I'm thinking this is, this was my opportunity. I'm probably not going to get one today. And all of a sudden the wind blew a little bit and I could see a persimmon fall off that tree. And I could see it falling and, you know, perfectly silhouetted in the skyline and plop on the ground. That deer stopped. His ears went back. He turned around like a dog being offered a treat. He trotted over there, found the persimmon, ate it, kind of looked around like, are there any more? And then went off to do whatever deer do in the evening. I didn't get a shot. But when I saw that, I was like, I've been in the woods most of my life on and off. I have seen deer eat all kinds of things that people don't think deer eat. I have seen deer really love things and be like okay with other things and things like that. I've watched deer walk through the woods when the leaves are falling in the fall and eat only the yellow leaves for whatever reason. Like I've seen things like that my whole life. I've never seen a deer other than that and other than when persimmons act that way. Like literally like I, this is the most important thing in the world to me. And I'm big on the, like the crab apples and stuff like that too would be a great idea. I think Nick did a good job at Add the persimmon to that. Next up, let's talk about making your deck invincible. Remember what that was from? James Bond movie? Invince. I am invincible. How do you do that with a deck? Hey guys, Toolman Tim here coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council. And this week's question comes from Jonathan and he says, Tim, What's the best way to make a wood deck invincible? I stained a three-month-old treated kiln-dried deck with Thompson's water seal this summer. It looks incredible. It looked incredible for about two weeks. After that, I noticed that it began scuffing quite easily. A couple of months later, the uncovered areas had obvious sun stains. Now, six months later, you can almost not tell that I even use Thompson's at all. I'm looking for a transparent or semi-transparent treatment for this deck that will prevent scuffs and stains, but also not make the deck slippery. John. Well, John, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. First off, I got to say, in my experience, I have loved Thompson's water seal for the most part. My dad and I applied it to his deck religiously every single summer. We used Harvest Gold for probably 15 years, and that deck looked as good as the day it was built. Now, unless they've changed something recently, I really have had good luck with that product. Now, I will say, Three summers ago, I did a deck for an elderly couple, followed the directions perfectly, and I had very similar results to you. Now, their deck hadn't been treated in a lot of years, uh, and in your instance, the deck was brand new. Now, brand new wood can be really thirsty, and even though they recommend on the package everywhere you read just one application, I would honestly put an application on, and two or three days later, try a second application. I've had really good luck, you know, applying it with either um, a fine brush or a rag and rub it in because I found the rag was the best because I got the least amount of blotches. However, that honestly, that's what I would recommend. Give it another 
really healthy dose this spring, and I think you might be surprised. At least that's my recommendation, because I have had nothing but good luck with this product over the years. Just be really liberal with it. Make sure you get it everywhere. And I honestly would chalk it up to the fact that it was a brand new deck that was really thirsty, that sucked a lot of it in, and it just needs another application. Now, what other options are there? I know you wanted something semi-transparent or transparent. You know, by the nature of it being transparent, it's kind of an issue. If you want something that's absolutely permanent, there's a polyurethane or an elastomeric rubber treatment that you can get for decks. Now, I never used this myself, but I had a contractor that specialized it when I used to work at Home Hardware years ago, and he loved it. It was basically a treat it once and never have to deal with it again. It's very similar to the type of material that you would roll out to retreat the roof of an RV. Works really, really good. Now, I know this is a brand new deck, but for some other people out there who might be looking at other options, there's also engineered uh, deck boards. They look just like a regular wood deck board. They have the uh, the color all the way through. You can pick different colors. Trex is a very common brand of that. Now, I'm sure you don't want to haul that up and uh, you know redo it all, but that's an option for anyone else who's maybe considering something down the road. Um, you could always cement over it. No, I'm just kidding. But honestly... My opinion is Thompson's is a really good product. I did have a bad experience with it, uh, you know, three years ago or so, but the next summer I reapplied and now it looks really good. But I will say, uh, looking for something that isn't slippery, but you're also looking to make it waterproof, you're going to have a tough time unless you want to go with a rubber treatment. And when you're doing the rubber treatment, you can always add in some of that, um, that grit that you can buy. I'll add links to all those products. Uh, when I send them to Jack, but the problem is you've either got a deck that wants to absorb the water and won't be slippery, or you want to seal the deck and it gets slippery. In our climate, of course, in the cool kind of fall time, if you get a light rain and then it freezes in the morning, it's just like a curling rink with all the little pebbles on it. So that's kind of the nature of the beast. You either protect it or you let the water absorb into it. But even pressure-treated lumber is made to last for, you know, as long as it's not touching the ground, then it can be, you know, it can last a very, very long time. But I would just go with in the spring or in the summer, give it another application of Thompson's water seal, be really liberal with it. And if you're still not happy with the results, two or three days later, give it another coating. But the best way to test it is after two or three days, take a few drops of water, drop them on a spot and see, you know, if it, if it absorbs within five or 10 seconds, you know it needs another treatment. If it doesn't, you're good to go. I hope that helps. John, uh, it's always fun. It always sucks when you do something like that and it doesn't turn out the way you want it to, but that's what I would do. Anyway, guys, if you want to know more about what I'm up to, drop by the YouTube channel or toolmantim.co. Every Thursday evening, I have an episode of Repairedness. It's part of the Workshop Live podcast where I talk about the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. We're doing a deep dive into all the systems of the home, parts to stock, skills to learn, and things that are a lot more accessible and repairable than you just might think. Anyway, guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I do have the uh, other products that Tim mentioned in the show notes so you can take a look at them. I'm going to say something about Thompson's. I don't hate Thompson's, but if you really look at what Thompson's is, it's basically wax. And so it works because wax is some good stuff, but it does wear off. Uh, I am, I am in complete agreement about 
as liberal as possible getting it into the wood. The issue is it does a pretty good job of sealing, and it rapidly often gets to a point where it won't take more. But what I've found when using a product like a Thompson's, instead of doing two coats right away, do a coat, wait a week, and do another coat. And you might get more uptake of it that way. Um, down here, I, I, I honestly think if I ever build another deck, even though it's a lot more expensive and, I, and, and the whole doesn't get hot is bullshit, it gets really hot and burns your feet, I'll probably go with Trex. Because no matter what we do with decking here in Texas, with the intensity of our sunlight, you have to seal almost every year. Really. Anyway, uh, next up, I have one from Nicole Sauce on podcast hosting. Hey, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question from CJ. He asks, what's your recommendation for setting up hosting with a WordPress site and a podcast? And he goes on to explain that he's had a podcast in the past And he had it all set up on HostGator. And as he's been looking at launching a new one, he realized that HostGator is no longer recommended. So I'm glad he realized that because you can get in a pickle with Bluehost and HostGator on things like this. For simplicity of workflow, as well as maintaining control, he's looking at, do I find another hosting company or do I use something like Anchor and pay a subscription fee for my audio podcast? CJ, it depends on the goals with your podcast, how big it and how big it's going to get. I would not invest at the outset of a podcast in a very expensive um, hosted, like owned server like Jack does. I wouldn't do it because if you're looking at several thousand dollars a month to host your audio and you only have a few hundred downloads out of the shoot, it's it's the the cost to like the ROI is just not there. So in your shoes, I would be asking myself, how serious am I about this show? How big is it going to grow? And what do I need to do to make it endure? And then I would assess the risk. Am I talking about topics that are likely to get me canceled off the big boys or not? Because if your podcast is about fly fishing, you're probably fine. Or if your podcast is about skateboarding, you're, you're unlikely to get canceled right now. And then you have a, a bigger set of options. I would keep my WordPress hosting somewhere like WP Engine or get a host now that's dedicated to supporting WordPress specifically and my audio hosted somewhere else. This gives you the benefit of if you have a really good month and a really awesome episode and a gajillion people download it, then you can if you know and and you exceed your server bandwidth and you get shut down, your website still works, even if your audio is not downloadable, it gives you a little less panic while you're calling your hosting company and giving them more money to allow you more downloads. As far as whether I would use a paid service like Libsyn or Anchor versus a my own server, if I had mine to do all over, I would go with my own server, and I'm on Libsyn. And here's why. It, because now I am going to be redeploying my entire uh, audio library on my own server as I've grown. And it, the migration means, like, I have to manually do it. It's kind of a pain in the neck. Actually, there is a plugin I can use to automate that. But it's it's more hassle to move it. However, had I not started with Libsyn, I wouldn't have even figured out how to get started at all. So there, there's that piece of... When I started my podcast, it was all about getting it done. 
and the easiest way for me to get it done was to put it on Libsyn, and instead of using the blog that they give you with Libsyn, I pointed all shows straight back to my website so that I at least captured people and could get them to sign up for email. And and that has worked well for me for over five years. It's just I grew. And now that I've grown, it's time for me to do what you're talking about doing from the outset. It sounds like you're serious enough to want to own your your podcast material out of the shoot. Um, for people who are starting and just not sure, it's, it, it is a little easier to use one of the, the shared, like the, um, the subscription podcast providers for this. So then that said, if it was two years ago, what I would have done in your shoes is I would have set up my site, uh, on a, as a WordPress site. I would have probably used the plugin that we're using for Unloose the Goose, which is Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y is the name of the plugin to, syndicate to, to create my my feed and to syndicate out to all the all the people who you know like iTunes and whatnot when when you produce a podcast so that that's all automated and then I would have taken my audio files and uploaded them to my very own Amazon web server that's what I would have done and then Amazon decided that it would be a good idea to go full retard on Parler and just shut them off with no warning. And that means that you can't trust them. So, so then that leaves you with a project of looking around for who else can do hosting at a reasonable fee, at a reasonable speed for things like audio files and and again, if you're a low risk topic, then I, I probably wouldn't hesitate using Amazon Web Services or something of that nature, nature as a first step. And then when you grow, be ready to find a real hosting company with something like Rackspace or, or whoever else you can reach out. I mean, Rackspace, I've worked with before and they're great. They've been great every time. I've never had politics entering into the relationship. Uh, but, that's the best advice I can give you. So A, decide what, how serious are you and how fast you're going to grow. B, if you want to maintain control of your files, put your website on one host that specializes in WordPress and then get your audio files somewhere else. Uh, C, if, if you decide to use something like Anchor or Libsyn, find ways to drive people back to your site so that they're never looking at some weird blog page on Anchor's site. And then D, always have a backup of your audio files and a backup of the backup in case you have to pivot quickly. As far as specific recommendations for WordPress Plus, which plugin, I am very happy with Blueberry. I used, I tested a couple of different plugins when we launched the Unloose the Goose podcast and they were okay, but Blueberry was the one that got the job done the way we needed it done. And then of course, what you're going to have to do is go out to Spotify and, and iTunes and all of those and set yourself up manually there with the feed. And then when you, you know, every time the feed updates, it will get your stuff out there. I hope this helps you get started with your podcast and look forward to checking it out once it's up and running. I did want to mention one other thing based on what I read. You said you were going to put your video on YouTube, but you did not mention if you're going to 
have it backed up on Odyssey or any other non non big tech options. So maybe think about that too. If you're worried about maintaining control of your audio files, worry about maintaining control of your video files too and having a backup ready to go. Really, I think on this issue, what's r- most important is start getting your podcast out there and get as many people interested in it and listening to it and downloading it as possible. And as it grows, have a plan for how you're going to scale up when it scales up so that you can pivot when you need to pivot. And if this thing is stop- stopping you from getting started, then I'm going to go back to just Use Anchor if that's what gets it done for you and be ready to redeploy if you have to redeploy. Hope this answer has you, helps you out. And I'm really interested to hear what Jack has to say as well. If you guys are interested in, if you have not already seen it over at hollerose.com, we just launched February's coffee of the month, a vanilla cooled, lovely coffee. It's super tasty. I'm going to toss a free bag into Jack's most recent order because it's so good. Don't want to miss out on that one. You can see it over at hollerose.com. Make it a great week. So next up, I want to talk a little bit about the Joe Rogan Spotify situation, and what you're about to hear is from a live stream video that I did today. And if you want to find the video that is of this segment alone, you can find it in the show notes for today's show. Rogan. So here's the deal, guys. Joe Rogan will not be censored by Spotify. Joe Rogan will not be taken off of Spotify, and it's not because Spotify is a good group of people. Spotify has openly stated that they have censored something like 20,000 podcasts that had to do with COVID-19. I don't even know if that number is right, because I'm not sure there are 20,000 podcasts to censor that deal with COVID-19. And I have quite a few podcasts about COVID-19 Uh, one of which got me recently thrown in YouTube jail for a week, so I wasn't exactly pulling any punches. That's on Spotify, and they didn't censor that. So I don't know how much censoring or active censoring Spotify does, but I can tell you it's not 100% of all COVID-19 things. Um, and this whole you know misinformation crap is just, I think it's actually coming to a head with people. People are starting to realize they're being lied to. But none of that matters. It also doesn't matter that, like, Who was it recently? Like, like these retreads from the 60s and 70s that nobody gives two shits about, right? Um, you know, joining the, uh, the, the train to get their name back out for five freaking seconds. Uh, what, yesterday it was the monkeys? The freaking monkeys? Are you kidding me? Does anybody listen to the monkeys anymore? And the Partridge family. Good lord, you talk about being a, a washed up retread has been. Just begging for stuff. Please look at me. Pay attention to me. It doesn't even matter. It's not going to matter if freaking, I don't know who's popular with people now. Post Malone or Taylor Swift or somebody like it. Somebody's huge. If they do it, it's not going to matter. Spotify can't financially afford to censor Joe Rogan. Here's, here's why. Very famously, Spotify bought exclusive rights to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast for $100 million. This is not a contract like you get if you are an anchor on Fox News or MSNBC, where it's $50 million over five years and you have a salary and we can fire you. This is, we are purchasing the exclusive rights for whatever period of time the contract states anyway, 
to your podcast. It won't be anywhere else. And it's there are some exceptions to it because Rogan continues to run segments, smaller segments like this one of my podcast on YouTube. So it's not exclusive as far as all the content. It's exclusive for the entire podcast from beginning to end. And I'm sure there's some limit on how long his segments that he can upload will be. And uh, that's a big investment. That's 10% of a billion dollars. It's real money. It actually matters. Now, here's the other thing. Spotify doesn't actually make a lot of money on music. Spotify actually makes most of its money on podcasts when you do the math and figure out how people who pay for Spotify or use Spotify and see advertisements, uh, if you look at their, their, uh, their activity level on, on the platform. And here's, here's how you have to work this out. Let's say you had a song that got, I don't know, a million listens a week. That would be a huge song. Or just even an artist, that their combined material got a million listens a week on Spotify. That would be a big artist. I'm certain that, you know, um, David Crosby or Neil Young or the freaking Monkees don't get a million downloads of their songs or listens to their songs a week on Spotify. But here's the thing, even if they do, how long's the song? Two to seven minutes, right? For for most music. And a lot of music's in that three to four minute window. That's kind of the perfect radio, so there's so much you know, radio frameworks, there's so much of that music that way. How long is a Joe Rogan experience podcast? It's right around three hours. And if you take out like when he did the one with Robert Malone, he got fifty million downloads of three hours long of content. He doesn't do that every day. His average daily uh, user base across Spotify is 11 million a day for three hours. And what you have to understand about that, that's a lot more than 11 million people. Because if, if you're like me, if you like Rogan, and I do, you probably don't listen to every show. You probably don't listen to every show I do. You probably don't listen to every show of any podcaster. So... I actually have only listened to probably three or four dozen Joe Rogan Experience podcasts end to end. You know, my favorite were a long time ago with like Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock. Those were some of the best. The Malone one was great. The McCullough one was great. Those are recents. But what that means, just think of it from your, your Spotify and your users. You're getting 11 million people downloading three hours of content a day on average with bursts that are much higher. And that means you probably have something in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 million people that actually caused that to happen. That's like, that's a pretty big piece of your customer base. And then look at, well, how much opportunity do you have for the people that aren't paying to advertise? So I listened to Neil Young's shitty song and it's on for two to three minutes. You can't do an advertisement every other song. It wears out. So it's a fraction of a fraction contributing to the advertising. If I'm watching for three hours and I'm not paying the premium, you have a lot of ads you can run in front of me. You have a lot of money you can make off of me by keeping my attention that long. See how that works? Here's the other side of it. If I'm paying you, you're going to make an estimate of what content your viewer values the most by where they spend the most of their time listening. And if I'm listening to Joe Rogan once a week for three hours, it's probably going to produce more revenue for you, even on the premium model, than all the rest of my music listening combined. Not to mention anybody can find any song they want, anywhere they want, anytime they want, anyway, anymore. 
So it doesn't even matter. There's not a lot of money in streaming music anymore. And there's not going to be. And there's going to be more and more ways that people get their music for absolutely free. And that's why they've come up with these subscription services and combined things like podcasts. Because if it's seven or ten bucks a month, a lot of people are like, yeah, it's, it's not that much money, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll have iHeartRadio or Apple Music or Spotify or whatever, Pandora Premium, because it's just not a lot of money. But if you piss somebody off, all of a sudden that seven, eight, nine bucks a month starts to be kind of annoying and then they leave. So if, if, if Spotify censors Rogan, this is what happens. This is what happens. And Mike's saying that Spotify has to pay publishers for every song played. Correct. They don't pay me jack shit when they syndicate my podcast. They paid Joe Rogan one time hundred million bucks. He got his payday and then he is obligated to stay there, right? So every time they pay, pay, play, you know, shitty song by the monkeys, the monkeys get some money. Well, not anymore because they're off the platform now, what have you, right? So that eats away at the profit per song play where they make a ton of money per podcast listened to. You see how that works? It's, it's real simple. Well, if they start censoring Joe Rogan, I guarantee you Joe Rogan didn't walk into a $100 million contract without a lawyer at his side or three. And I guarantee you there's a provision in there, because the main reason he went to Spotify is he got tired of having his shit taken off of YouTube, that he can't be censored. Now, they can do it. They can say, we're going to sever our relationship with Rogan, or we're going to start taking down shows that we don't agree with. And then Joe Rogan can say, oh, oh, gee, did you... Did you guys go and break my contract? Well, I'm going to take my $100 million, buy, and then go do whatever he wants. Because unlike somebody that's attached to Fox News or CNN or something like that, and that's part of the problem with these people calling for him to be canceled, they do not comprehend this. They're referring to him as a talk show star. He's not a talk show star, morons. He's an independent podcaster. That's what he is. Like People are confused what podcasts are now because since people like myself, far lesser degree than Rogan, people like myself, Adam Curry, uh, there's a ton of us that we make, we make our living doing this, and we've done really well with it, and we've been in the game forever. I've been doing this since 2008, and so the media finally kind of caught on to that, and now every news show, every talk show, every, everybody's got a podcast you know, produced by CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or some shit like that. So people that are new to the world of podcasting in you know, the last couple, three years think that, like, well, that's how podcasting works. No, dumbass. My podcast is being done from my freaking office in my freaking house right now. It'll go out, you know, on YouTube here on the live stream, this segment of it. We'll get, you know, a couple thousand listens or whatever. But when it goes out through all the aggregation total services, my show gets about 200,000 plays per episode. And I do that as a redneck hippie duck farmer. I call my own shots. You can't cancel us. You can't cancel us. It's not a thing you can do. There's no switch with which you can cancel us. All you can do is push us off of aggregation services like Apple Music or Spotify. And this is why I started out with I kind of wish Spotify would. Because I would love to see Adam Curry's Podcasting 2.0 become the de facto platform that people use to consume podcasts. And you ain't censoring that. You ain't censoring that. And I've said this for years with YouTube like taking down videos, shadow banning, and then finally banning people here and there. Do it! Ban me! Ban all of us! Not just me! 
Ban everybody you disagree with. Step up tech platforms. Be what you are. Say what you are and mean it. We know you're our enemies. We know you only tolerate us because we bring views in. We know all this. We know you despise us for who we are. Be what you are. Stand up and do it. Just ban all of us. And I'll tell you why. Because then they're done. Then there's nothing else they can do. That's why they've been on this slow bleed thing for months now. Slow bleed. They take out this person and that person. And Facebook bans this page with a million followers. But they don't outright ban the individual. And they just kind of let it float around. Because they know if they were to do something like... If you purged, you know, people as small as the Survival Podcast with a couple hundred thousand listeners, and Joe Rogan with like 11 million, and people like Adam Curry that probably has a million or so view, uh, listeners and viewers, and you purged like the big people all at once, then then all of our people collectively will go somewhere else. That's why they do the slow bleed. But Spotify, it's not even that. Rest assured, folks, they will not do it. Because it is a financial death sentence if they do. Rogan will keep his money. And he'll be like, hello, welcome to the Joe Rogan experience. We're now on Apple. We're on Podcasting 2.0. We're on whatever. Wherever the hell he wants to go. He got his money. You understand? He got his money. Now, I want to say something. People are saying Spotify caved by doing a warning, uh, uh, you know, putting an announcement at the beginning of podcasts to talk about it, like, you know, go to the CDC to get the latest information. The, the, the views expressed here may not be factual. They are the opinion of the host and his guests only or something like that. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's a, it means nothing. You know what it means? It means as much as when they put a warning label on a pack of cigarettes in the 1980s. People either quit smoking or they don't. They don't, like, buy a pack of cigarettes and go, huh. Surgeon General. Oh, shit! I gotta get rid of that. I didn't know. Man, I didn't know. I thought they had vitamin C in them and stuff. Yes, I did lift that off of an 80s bit from Dennis Leary. Uh, but yeah, it won't matter. It doesn't matter. I guarantee you, most of what I put out that has anything to do with uh, COVID on, you know, on any major platform has a warning. No one cares. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's almost as irrelevant as Neil Young. With that, let's wrap things up and let me remind you guys one of the really easy ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you'll find all my reviews and stuff like that. Most of the stuff that's on tspaz is like long-term reviews. They've been, some of them been there for years. I make updates when things change. If I find a better product, I replace the old one or I'll say, hey, this is still good, but here's what's better now. I'll append to it. But also, every once in a while, I bring you kind of deal-of-the-day ones, things that are on sale or special finds that won't last long. Right now, this one's still available. I don't know how much longer it's going to last. I've already looked at my sales reports. It's selling well for me. It's probably selling well for other affiliates. But it's, it's leveraging the program I've told you about before, Amazon Renewed. And for those that think Amazon Renewed means they, they took a product and repaired it, I, I'm not going to go deep into it today. I want to get wrapped up. But that's not what it means. It means, it's, it generally speaking, they're returned items that are inspected and put in a box and resold. And as I've always said, on Amazon Renewed, what happened is they did so many years of selling opened returned items, just pallets of them for a blanket price. They, they, they also have realized that when they do that, there's certain items that they really should cherry pick 
and why it's that's why you'll find it's always like top end name brand appliances or power tools and things like that or electronics and stuff like that you find on Renewed. A tool I think everybody should own for their kitchen kitchen tool is a food processor. And I'm going to be doing a show soon on gearing up in the kitchen as a prepper and homesteader. And I would say that every I wouldn't say it's essential, but it's, you should have it. Right, so there's essential, and then there should have under my should have list a good food processor would would be something worth having. When I say good, I mean large capacity, multifunction. The little mini ones are fine for what they do. I have one when I don't want to take stuff out. I'm just making some pico or something. Sure, but when you look at like the ability to make like uh, we we use it a lot with zucchinis for making uh, lasagna, zucchini lasagna, since we don't want to use noodles, right? Um, and, and being able to take a zucchini and cut perfect two-millimeter-thin slices, and it's literally, and the whole zucchini's gone, like that. And my my you know, my grandson and my granddaughter, they love to make homemade potato chips, where you throw a potato through there in seconds and make perfect potato chips. Uh, I don't really eat a lot of I eat a couple whenever you make them, but you know, it's really for them. But there's a ton of things you can do. You can shred cheese. You can shred cabbage for your coleslaw. You can make nut butters. You can make... Uh, your own mayonnaise, and then you can infuse them with things like garlic and lemon and make really amazing sauce. There's so much you can do. I'm going to save all of the stuff you can do for another day, but I'll just give you an example of something you can do that most people would never think of. I really like delicious hard meats like pepperonis and salamis and soppressetta and stuff like that. So I'm sitting one day, and I'm looking at, at my food processor we had out for other things, and I'm looking at this piece of this rosemary-infused salami, and I'm like, What's the worst that could happen? So I have the four millimeter uh, slicing blade on, and and it worked 99%. A couple pieces were like not quite as good as doing it like a vegetable, and at the end it kind of turned and I had some. But it, I mean, it was great. It was perfect. It was instant, and it worked great. Today, and I have a Cuisinart. It's a different model than this one, but they're very similar. The Cuisinart FP11G is on renewed in a gunmetal color hopefully you don't care about color because that's the one you can get and it's normally 150 bucks and it's on sale for 67 dollars and again this will sell out and then there won't be any more and you're talking about a, a, a discount over the retail of 54 percent yes it's a return or something like that it doesn't matter and as far as quality i think the one i got's a little bit better of one but if I didn't have one, and I was between spending 160 for the one I have or 66 for this one, I'd buy this one. Get this one while you can. Uh, it looks like you guys didn't miss out today. I always tell you, get on the Telegram channel, because that's how people found out about it first thing in the morning, is mostly through the Telegram channel. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Show you a better way You don't have to be Another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way 
Revolution. 